0: So instead, I was up till eleven o'clock last night preparing in Daniel chapter eight. Why don't we turn there, the book of Daniel chapter eight? We've been busy constructing a um, eschatology, and I've actually been developing it and deciding about it right here as I study each week and stand behind the pulpit. <laughs> um, it's like I did a bunch of studying and then came to my conclusion. No, I'm. I actually you want to build an eschatology based on good exegetical work. To simply go over the verses and draw out from them what the scriptures are saying. Exegesis, you know, ek is the Greek word which means out. You want to draw out from scripture what it is saying. That's what you want to do when you're trying to, trying to interpret the scriptures. You do not want to do eisegesis, which is all too prevalent in American Christianity. eis is the Greek word for Into. That's where you read into the scripture something that isn't there. And I say when it comes to eschatological matters in our country today, that's hugely what's being done. as people are reading into the scripture something that isn't even there. That's why I gave up the view that I held to, the dispensational premillennial view that I held to 20 years ago. Because I saw how bankrupt it was. Just doing the exegetical work on the passages that they were using. But I never constructed anything in its place after I threw that off. And so that's what I've been doing. And we went through Mark uh, 12, 13, 14 as we were preaching through it. And now we came and are preaching through Daniel. And now we're hitting more eschatology. We did in chapter 2. And now we are here in chapter 7 and now chapter 8 all the way through to chapter 12 all dealing with eschatological matters. The book of Daniel is essentially divided into two parts. The first six chapters cover a history of Daniel's life, and the last six chapters cover the visions, dreams, and prophecies of his life. And you may recall the dream vision of chapter 7 came in the reign of Belshazzar's first year. And here in chapter 8, the vision Daniel sees comes in the reign of Belshazzar's third year. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? I'll pray. I'm just going to read the first eight verses, but we will cover the entire chapter. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw... And there, standing beside the river, was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, But when he became strong, the large horn was broken and in place of it, four notable ones came up four winds of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the years so that we can study them, so that we can know your ways and your thoughts. Lord, we thank you that we have time here in the book of Daniel. and As difficult as some things can be, To seem to understand, we thank you that you preserve them so that we can study them. God, I just ask and pray that you use this sermon for good in each one's life. May each one understand your ways and thoughts better because of what's preached here today. And may it cause each one to love you deeper and desire to serve you greater. And I ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. could be seated. Verse 1 makes it clear that Daniel received this vision in the third year, it says, of the reign of King Belshazzar. That's when he received it. Verse 2 gives us the location. It says, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. We have no idea why Daniel was there, whether he was there on the um, king's business or just on his own time. We have no idea. But that's where he was. That's the location where he was when the vision came. And in verse 3, he starts to define what the vision was. And he says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Here we go with the whole animal-beast thing again. Just like in chapter 7. Who or what does this ram represent? Well, verse 20 tells us plainly that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. Look at verse 20 of Daniel 8. The interpretation is being given. And the one giving him the interpretation of the dream says to Daniel, The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And we've talked a lot about, these, about this empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, while we've been in Daniel. And um, that's who the ram represents. This vision will confirm part of the previous one that Daniel received in chapter 7. And at the same time, it will fill in details about future events, future at that time, which will take place regarding the nation of Israel. Which will take place regarding the nation of Israel. Before we move on to verse 4, notice one of the horns is higher than the other. Remember in chapter 7, the Medo-Persian Empire was represented by what? A bear. Chapter 7, verse 5. And you may remember that the bear was raised up on one side, suggesting that the one part of the empire would be stronger than the other. And that was the case historically. Historically, the Median Empire started first, and then the Persian Empire was joined to it. And what happened after that? The Persian Empire... The Persian part of the empire became more dominant than the median part. That's a historical fact. Hence it says here in chapter 8, verse 3, one horn was higher than the other. Showing again that the Persian part was stronger than the median part. And then it says, and the higher one came up last. Historically, when the Persian empire, which came up last was joined to the Median Empire. The Persian part became the dominant part, just as Daniel's vision declares. It became the bigger horn, stronger part of the empire. Now, verse four says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. This is exactly the directions in which the Persian Empire made its conquests. It was located in the east, the empire itself, and it conquered to the north, to the south, and to the west. To the west, they conquered Mesopotamia, Syria, Macedon, and Asia Minor. To the north, they conquered Armenia and all the area around the Caspian Sea. To the south, they conquered Babylon and Egypt. The Medo-Persian Empire became the world power of its day. Remember, Babylon was the world power. As we saw in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, it was toppled by the Medo-Persian Empire. That's what's what's being talked about here, this ram. The Medo-Persian Empire is conquering everything. As the scriptures say here in verse 4, no animal could withstand him. Now, in verse 5, a different animal comes on the scene, again continuing this animal beast thing, symbolic language used in these visions and dreams. And verse 5 says, And as I was considering, you know, what was going on here with this ram, suddenly a male goat came from the west, the other direction, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes who is this male goat who came from the west who or what does this male goat represent well thankfully verse 21 tells us plainly as the interpretation of the visions given verse 21 says and the male goat is the kingdom of greece amen so verse 21 tells us plainly that this is Greece, the greco macedonian Empire established by Alexander the Great himself. They were situated in the west, as the scripture says here in verse 5. That's a historical fact. It's where Greece was, is in the west. And it says that the goat came across the whole surface of the earth without touching the ground. Cross the whole earth means all the entire Persian Empire from west to east. Medo-Persia was the world power of that day. God was going to raise up another power, the goat, Alexander the Great, the Greco-Rosidonian Empire, to topple that world power and make a new world power. He moved with lightning speed. That is why it says that his hooves never touched the ground. He moved with lightning speed. You may remember in chapter 7, the empire of Greece was represented by a leopard with wings. Recall that? The empire of Greece was represented by a leopard with wings, also denoting speed. This is what Alexander the Great in his military conquest was noted for down through history the speed with which he conquered. In only 11 years, he conquered the entire world. In 11 years. The notable horn mentioned in verse 5, between the goat's eyes, is representative of Alexander the Great himself. Now verse six says, then he came, he, the goat, came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. He ran at him with furious power. If you've ever studied the conquest of Alexander the Great over the Medo-Persian Empire, it is remarkable. He annihilated it, decimated it. A huge military feat. I mean, if you like military history, I love military history. Great battles there that you might want to read about one day. Verse 7 says, And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground, trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Talking about the Greco-Macedonian Empire, led by Alexander the Great, annihilating the Medo-Persian Empire. Says that the ram was moved with, uh, the goat was moved with rage against the ram. When you read history, you'll see that the Greeks had been mistreated by the Persians for many years, though they were the sole nation not to be conquered by them. The Greeks were the only ones not to, they were annexed by them, but they were never conquered by the Persians. The reason the goat was moved with rage against the ram was because it was payback time. The Greeks were retributing justice as they went on their way and annihilating the Persian Empire. The rest of the verse here is simply talking about Greece under Alexander the Great How it destroyed and conquered the Persian Empire, replacing them as the new world power. Now in verse 8 it says, Therefore the male goat, talking about again, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, Greece, under Alexander the Great, Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. When the goat became great and strong, the horn was broken. Who does the horn repre- what does the horn represent? The great horn? Remember everything we've seen so far, horns always represent men. Have you noticed that in chapter seven here in chapter eight? The beasts represent the kingdoms, the empires. the horns represent men. When Alexander the Great became strong and great, he died. At the apex of his achievements at the young age of 33, Here he had conquered the entire world and he died from a sudden fever from dissipation. Although it was rumored that he was actually poisoned by one of his own men. Four notable horns, the scripture says, will come up in its place. What is this speaking of? The four generals of Alexander the Great that took over four different areas of his empire. And this is all historical fact. And yet the scriptures are predicting it nearly 200 years in advance that all this was going to happen. The four horns speaks of the four divisions into which Alexander the Great's empire was divided and ruled by four separate individuals. The four horns replaced the one. Cassander ruled Greece and Macedon. Lysimachus ruled Thrace in the western half of Asia Minor to Cappadocia and Phrygia. Ptolemy ruled Palestine, Cilicia, Cyprus, Egypt, and Lydia. And Seleucus, Seleucus controlled the rest of Asia Minor all the way to the Indus Valley. Remarkable how Scripture predicts 200 years before it ever took place in time and space what was going to happen. Remarkable. Now, in verse 9, the scripture says, and out of one of them, out of these four horns, these four men that I just mentioned to you, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, the scripture says, and out of one of them came a little horn. So here we got a little horn here. Remember we had a little horn in chapter 7? There was ten horns and then came out from them a little horn and messed up three of the horns (laughs) and became the power that God would use regarding the nation of Israel and their destruction. But here it says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. First let me say this. The little horn is not the little horn of chapter 7. You all understand that, right? This is a different little horn. Just because it says little horn doesn't mean it's the same little horn. You see a lot of that in the eschatological writings of men. They always try to, if one term is used one place, they always think it's somehow the same of, of, of what was used in the other place. It's not. It's typology. It's symbolic language that's used for different scenarios throughout Scripture. The little horn of chapter 8 is not the little horn of chapter 7. The little horn came up in chapter 7 out of the fourth beast representing Rome and was clearly a Roman king, which we identified last week as Vespasian. This little horn here in chapter 8 comes up out of the third beast of chapter 7 and the goat here in chapter 8, which both represent the Greco-Macedonian Empire or Greece. So the little horn in chapter 7 isn't the little horn in chapter 8. Two Totally separate persons. So let's keep that straight and stick with the context of both passages. Now, who is this little horn that came out of one of the four horns on the goat? Scholars are agreed, regardless of their eschatological persuasion. Scholars are agreed it is Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the great-great-grandson of Seleucus, who you may recall was one of the four who took over after Alexander the Great died. So here we have the little horn coming out of one of the bigger horns. He was also the brother of Cleopatra I. He ruled from 175 to 164 B.C. The scriptures say he grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Isn't that what it says here in verse 9? And he did. He attacked Egypt to the south, and most of it felt him in 169 B.C. He also attacked to the east and won victories in Parthia and, and Armenia. The Glorious Land, what is the Glorious Land referring to? That refers to Palestine, to Israel, where the Jews, God's chosen people, resided. And yes, he attacked and ravaged Israel. The Greek tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn of Daniel 8. Now, when we get to chapter 11, we get more detail, a little different, but we'll get more detail about Antiochus Epiphanes there and what all was done. Verse 10 says, and it grew up to the host of heaven. What grew up? The little horn did. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Do you think this is talking about literal stars? No. It's symbolic language. Thank you. This is symbolic language being used here, as most of the vision uses such language. Who is the host of heaven? And who are these stars that were cast down to the ground by the little horn? Well, host is a term most usually used in reference to the armies of the angels of the Lord in service to Him. But it is also a term used in Scripture of the actual stars in the sky. And it is also used in Scripture as a reference to the people of God. For example, in Genesis 15, 5, the people of God are spoken of as being as numerous as the stars in heaven. And in Exodus chapter 12, Verse 41, the people of God are spoken of as the host of Yahweh. This is how it is being referred to here. It's talking about the people of God. The glorious land was just mentioned, Israel. All scholars are agreed on this. That is referring, being used in the sense of the people of God. It is referring to the people of God being cast down and trampled by the little horn. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now verse 11 says, He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. The prince of the host is a reference to God himself. So arrogant, so full of pride was Antiochus' Epiphanes that he took on the people of God, stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple, and pillaged and vandalized it. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, was going to take on God himself. And it says that the little horn stopped the daily sacrifices in God's temple, cast down the sanctuary of God, and this is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did historically. 167 or 168 B.C., there seems to be a difference amongst historians. You read many historians, they say it happened in 168. You read many historians, that say it happened in 167. I don't know why the conflict is there regarding that. But in 167 or 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem. He had just failed to take all of Egypt. Remember I said he had won most of Egypt? And he put up a puppet leader in one area and the other guy who was still in charge at Alexandria agreed to go along with it. Well, he heard that there was treachery going on and that the two Ptolemies were working together and were going to throw off his rule. So he invaded Egypt again. But he had just failed to take it. Because as he went into Alexandria, he encountered the Roman commander, Popilius Lanus. Remember, Rome is on the rise at this time. They would become the fourth beast of of, of Daniel chapter 7. Remember that? They would become the new world power that would throw off the Greco-Macedonian world power. Here he meets the Roman commander Popilius Lanus, and Lanus humiliated Antiochus Epiphanes. He told him he wanted, the Roman Senate demanded him to leave Egypt. Antiochus said, Well, I need time to think about that. And Lanus actually drew out his sword and walked around Antiochus and scratched a circle all the way around antiochus in the dirt and told him he was not allowed to leave that circle till he had his answer <laughs> till he gave his answer antiochus agreed to leave so here he was totally humiliated if you knew anything about him you read historical accounts about what this guy was like i mean he so arrogant taking on god himself gives you a little taste <laughs> This had to be huge in him personally to be defeated in such a way. You do know what Epiphanes means, right? God manifest. He thought he was God manifest in the earth. That's why he took on. He's Anti-Echus the IV is who he is. But he took on the name Epiphanes because he believed he was God manifest in the earth. So on his way back from this humiliating defeat, he stops in Jerusalem on a Sabbath day and orders his general, Apollonius, to take 20,000 troops and seize Jerusalem. He then erected an idol in the temple and sacrificed pigs, an unclean animal, on the altar. This idol became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation. Daniel used... That exact terminology in chapter eleven, which again deals with chapter eight and chapter eleven, work together of Daniel, as we'll see when we get there. Daniel used that exact terminology. Jesus used this terminology in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, Mark thirteen fourteen, and Luke twenty-one twenty, regarding what Rome, regarding Rome and Vespasian. The daily sacrifices by the Jews were stopped at this time when Antiochus Epiphanes did what he did in 168 or 167 BC. The temple was pillaged and vandalized. There was a general sack of the city and many were massacred fulfilling all of what Daniel saw nearly 400 years earlier. is that remarkable? I mean, it fits so perfectly historically. It's amazing. Verse 12 says, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Because of transgression, because of the sin and rebellion of Israel, an army, it says here, and we know historically an army of 20,000, was given over to the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he stopped, just as the scriptures say here, the daily sacrifices. This is an historical fact, which the scriptures predicted nearly 400 years earlier. And it says truth was cast to the ground says here in verse 12, the daily sacrifices were stopped, were opposed, and he cast truth to the ground. Let me tell you just some of the laws that Antiochus put the people of God under. There's just a few. They could not sacrifice to Jehovah. Rather, they were ordered to sacrifice to idol gods. The temple was renamed Jupiter Olympius. They were forbidden to circumcise their children, and those found guilty of doing so were punished on the spot. The child was killed and hung around the mother's neck to decay there for days. They were compelled to, quote, depart from the laws of their fathers and to cease living by the law of God, unquote. The book of God and the law of Moses was forbidden, it was searched out. Homes were invaded, and it was searched for, and those found with it were executed. He definitely cast truth to the ground. Total perversion of everything to be true. Verse 13 goes on and it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So they're talking about how long is this going to go on? How long will the sacrifices be stopped and this trampling of God's temple and all that? How long will that be allowed to go on for? Verse 14, we get the answer. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, the Hebrew word used here, which is translated days, in the New King James Version, which we use here at Mercy Seat, is actually to break it down to what it says plainly, you would say evenings, mornings. It's what's used in Genesis 1, which isn't the usual day of the Hebrew word that would be used for day. So there has been a debate among scholars whether it's talking about 2,324-hour days or whether it's talking about 1,150 mornings and 1,150 evenings. So they debate whether this is a six-and-a-quarter-year period approximately, if you go with the 2,300-24-hour days, or whether it's a, approximately a three-year period if you go with the evening slash morning. That in mind, hope you're still with me here, that in mind, in 165 or 164 B.C., and again, I have no idea, the guys who say that what Antichius did with the temple in 168 say things changed in 165, The ones who say it happened in 167 say things changed in 164, okay? But in 165 or 164, regardless, it's a three-year period for all historians, 68 to 65 or 67 to 64. It's a three-year period for all historians. But in 165 or 164 B.C., Judas Maccabees, his name is actually Judas Maccabeus, they became known as the Maccabees, My son, one of my sons, Tralic, his middle name is Maccabeus. After Judas, Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus restored the temple to proper worship. That's when it was cleansed. Talk about here in verse 14. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. All that stuff from Antiochus was thrown out and proper worship was restored. This means that historically... The evenings and mornings are a little over three years view is the right way to take it. Understand? The evenings or mornings would be the right way to take it because historically it was just about three years and that goes with the evening morning view rather than the 24-hour, 2300-day view. Though, let me say this, we cannot be certain that that is the right view because the stopping of the daily sacrifices may have started earlier than the attack in 168 or 167 BC. When the pig was sacrificed and the idol to Zeus was put up because Antiochus Epiphanes had long been trying to Hellenize the Jews make them give up their Jewish traditions, and embrace Greek culture. He had been trying that for several years before 168 B.C. So the 24-hour day thing may actually be true. It may have actually been stopped before then. Verses 15 through 16. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, remember that's where he's at seeing this vision, who called and said, Gabriel, talking about the angel Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Angel Gabriel is going to make the vision known to Daniel so he can understand it. So he came near where I stood. And when he came I was afraid and fell on my face but he said to me understand son of man that the vision refers to the time of the end Notice it says that this vision refers to the time of the end it does not say that it refers to the end of time And that is an important distinction It's important in the Hebrew it's important to the text it's important to eschatological matters because so many take it to automatically mean the end of time. It does not say that. It says the time of the end, not the end of time. And what do these visions of Daniel address? Remember Daniel 10.14? I pointed that out to you last week. These visions make clear, it says plainly there, quote, what will happen to Daniel's people in the latter days? Amen? what will happen to his people, Israel, in the latter days. It is talking about the end of Israel as a geographical nation. This was part of the process regarding the end of Israel as a geographical nation. Verse 18 says, Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. Let me just have an aside here for a minute. You ever see people who... um, get into this getting slain in the spirit stuff, and they go down, you know, somebody touches them and they fall over backwards like a mummy and land on the ground or somebody catches them usually. Then they lay there. You'll notice this, that whenever someone's overwhelmed by the presence of God or falls down on their face or any situation like that, just do a study sometime, they're always stood back up on their feet right away. Tells you a little. I tell you a little bit of something about this slain in the spirit stuff? That's an aside. Verse 19. And he said, look. So he touched me, Daniel standing, standing up right now. Verse 19, he said, look, I am making known to you what will happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. This, it says here plainly, was part of the was part of the latter time of the process. What was going on with Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 to 164 BC was part of the latter time of the process. What process? Of natural Israel being utterly destroyed. God's indignation had already begun with Israel. They were in exile. He had sent them into exile. Daniel was in exile, receiving these visions in Babylon. They would continue to rebel as a nation over the next centuries, though there were bright spots like the Maccabees and Nehemiah. The actual end, however, would, the scriptures say, be at the appointed time. Is that what it says here in verse 19? be at the appointed time, which we now know to be 70 A.D. That's when the actual end finally came. With the complete destruction of the temple in Jerusalem on August 10th, 70 A.D. under Vespasian. This part of the process which Daniel was looking at here, nearly 400 years later, pardon me, nearly 400 years into the future, was called here in verse 19 the latter time of this whole process. Here, This is 400 years ahead, Antiochus, what what Daniel's looking at. That's called the latter time of this whole process of of the Israelites being destroyed, the nation of Israel being destroyed. The New Testament writers like Luke, Paul, Peter, James, and the author of Hebrews called the time they lived in, about 200 years after that, what did they refer to the time they lived in as? The last days. The last days to what? The last days to the destruction of natural Israel in 70 A.D. That's what not this pie-in-the-sky, hocus-pocus stuff that's been made up that you cannot ever come up with exegetically from Scripture that sells millions of books and billions of movies and tracks and makes men rich that's pushed in American Christianity today. You know, that nonsensical eschatology which I've defined over and over again in the past, the one which the Chinese church believed when the communists were coming and sat by and did nothing and allowed their country to be taken over by The communist Chinese, thinking that they would be raptured out only to find that they were brutally persecuted. Yeah, that bogus eschatology. The last days was called the last days because 70 AD was on the doorstep. And that was the end of natural Israel. Now, verse 20 through 22 says, The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Remember, he's interpreting for him. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. They were never like Alexander the Great, the four guys who took over the four parts of his kingdom. Never had the strength or power that Alexander had. Now verses 23 through 25 is further detail, a further description of Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's read through here. And in the latter time of their kingdom, remember Rome is rising at this time, that Daniel's looking forward to the future. Rome is rising at this time what it actually took time and took place in time and space. So it was the latter time of their kingdom, of these four horns kingdom. They were about to be replaced as the world power by the Greco-Macedonian Empire was about to be replaced by the Roman Empire as the world power. So it says in that latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. when you read accounts of historians from that day, from back then, near those times when Antiochus lived and the accounts they wrote of, he was a sinister, scheming dude. (laughs) The guy was brutally wicked. Fierce features. Fits right in. Sinister schemes fits right in. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Why? God was using him for his purposes in the earth. His power wasn't his own. God was using him for his purposes. He shall destroy fearfully. The man was ruthless. The thing I told you about, if they circumcised their children, the child was killed and hung around the mother's neck, left there to decay for many days. Left the decay right around the mother's neck. That just gives you a little taste. You got to read how brutal and destructive Antiochus was. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. The mighty dealing probably talking about Egypt. The holy people de- clearly dealing talking about Israel. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Remember, I read to you just some of the laws that he put in place in Judea and Jerusalem. He'll cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. Remember, he named himself Epiphanes, God Manifest. And this guy was loaded with self-exaltation, with pride and arrogance. He will destroy many in their prosperity. He will even rise against the prince of princes. A reference to God himself and the taking on of the whole temple. And then look what the last phrase of verse 25 says, but he shall be broken without human means. The little horn will be broken without human means. And that's exactly what happened. Antiochus died of a sudden malady. God took him out. He did not die by human means, namely, no man killed him. God took him out. Verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. No wonder he was sick for days. What he was in seeing in his visions was how brutally his own people would be treated in these visions, both by Antiochus Epiphanes and also by the Romans. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. He had seen the future of his people, the events that would befall them for the rebellion to God, the last sentence where it says, I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. I think the NIV captures the translation best when it translates it by saying, quote, I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Now, when we go through chapter 9... That is going to be an important chapter because there's huge controversy amongst the different eschatological schools of thought regarding chapter 9, particularly verses 24 through 27. And so I plan on taking particular care and time in going through that. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to you. We rejoice in you that we add this time in your scriptures. We thank you that they are understandable, that we can see how your word, your declarations predicted hundreds of years before they actually took place. We are able to see how they took place in time and space, showing the truth of your word, O oh God. And Father, we just thank you that we can study these matters out and construct an exegetical eschatology where we can hopefully understand these things. So many bewildered by things that are taught with the hopscotch, skip around and say that this points to that. When you look at them contextually, they have nothing to do with it, type of hermeneutic God. It's insane. Lord, I pray and ask that as we go through here, people see plainly what is being spoken of and how it is understandable as we live after the fact. And God, we ask for these things in Jesus' holy name, amen. You could be seated. We're going to take communion at this time. You can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. You do not have to be a member of our church or something like that to take communion with us. But you do need to be a Christian. So we ask if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, that you abstain from the Lord's table. Because this is something that is for believers only. And we observe the Lord's table every week at Mercy Seat Christian Church, and we do that for a number of reasons. One, it's the tradition of the church to do so. Um, Whenever the saints gathered each week, they would partake at the Lord's table. Granted, how we do it is an abbreviated form of how they did it, but nevertheless, it's the Lord's table. Amen? And so we follow in that blueprint laid out by the early church and observe his table when we gather each week. We also do it because we need to be reminded of God's great salvation. God's great salvation. There's only two elements at his table. The fruit of the vine, which represents his shed blood, and the bread, the bread which represents his body, and absolutely nothing else. Amen? And this is important. It's important because... Man, in all his religiosity, wants to think that he did something to procure his own salvation. And this time at his table reminds us, no, it's through Christ alone that we obtain salvation. Even after we become Christians, we can think that it's Jesus plus something I've done that gives me right standing with God. Even in our prayers, we can kneel and pray in quiet in our closet or in our bedroom and say, Father, I come before you through faith in Jesus but then be tallying up in our mind how good we have or have not been living our lives. And if we haven't been living good, then we have this pity party with God and try to pity party our way into his presence. If we've been doing good, then we think, oh, okay, accepts me. It's all bogus. You cannot obtain God's acceptance based on your goodness. Amen? And if you've sinned, the scriptures teach you need to confess it. He knows about it. You need to confess it. He's faithful and just, the scriptures say, to forgive you. And then you enter into his presence. And we need to be reminded of that, and this reminds us of that. There's only two elements at his table, the bread which represents his body and the fruit of the vine which represents his blood and nothing else. There isn't these two elements plus a list of how many hours I spent in prayer or how many good deeds I did. Now, when you're a Christian, you'll want to spend hours in prayer and you'll want to do good deeds. Amen? I mean, did you want to pray before you were a Christian? (laughs) Maybe when you were sick for five minutes and then once you were well, you would forget all about God again. But this is the point. Those good things that we do, they are the result. They are the fruit. They are the evidence of our saving faith in Jesus we don't do those good things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do those good things because we have obtained God's acceptance. Amen? That's our sole approach to God. is through Christ and Him alone. And So I encourage you. If you've sinned, ask God to forgive you. The Scriptures teach that He's faithful and just to do so. Enter into His presence. Get up and walk. Serve Him. Amen? And if you're thinking that somehow you're adding to the finished work of Christ because you've been doing really good in your walk with the Lord lately, I encourage you to humble yourself in his presence, to cast that off, and to approach him simply through the means which he has provided, which is through Christ alone. Amen? It's the sole means whereby he approaches, whereby we can approach him. When you enter in through the means which he has provided... You will have communion with God. That's why we call this communion. You'll commune with him. You'll have fellowship with him. You'll actually experience his presence. You'll actually feel and experience his presence when you enter in through the means which he has provided. Amen? So this is a great salvation. Let us think well on it. Apostle Paul wrote, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why did Christ encourage us to do this in remembrance of him? Because we need to be reminded of this great salvation. Because man in all his religiosity always wants to think it's Jesus plus something I've done. And it's not. It's through Christ alone that God accepts us. Whether we've been a Christian for five seconds or 55 years, our sole approach always is Through Christ. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And that's what we do here today. Proclaim his death. Praise his holy name. Amen. Because he died in our place so that if we will believe in him, we can obtain forgiveness of our sins and have right standing with with the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you. For this time at your table, we ask that you use it for good. Lord, I ask that each one of us would think well on this great salvation, that we would meditate on it, that we would look at scriptures regarding it this coming week. And, Father, that we would proclaim it to others. May we not be stingy, may we not be self-centered or cowardly and not declare your holy law and this great salvation to others, but may we boldly, by the power of your Holy Spirit, shout it from the housetops and let others know about you. Do it through each of us, I ask, this coming week. Grip our hearts and do it through each. I ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's partake together. Stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.